This is Care Less, Do More. Welcome back to Care Less, Do More. My name is Michelle Parker, and this is the place that I interview people who have inspired me in one way, shape, or form over the years. It's an honor to be the host, to get to sit down with these people and dig in a little bit more than usual. No distractions, just pure connection, the way it should be. Before we listen to today's episode, I've got to thank Darn Tough Vermont. Darn Tough is a special company. They're family owned and operated for three generations now. The people that work there call it a family even if not by blood. They seek out like-minded partners and invest in good things. They give back. These socks are made in Vermont and they have a lifetime guarantee. I mean, come on, who does that? Not a sock company. But they do because they make incredibly durable socks that last. A pair of Darn Tufts fits in all the right places. They help prevent blisters as they're made of wool and wool is this beautiful fabric that retains heat when needed, dries fast, and they also don't smell bad. From now through October, Darn Tough is giving you 10% off plus free shipping when you use the code DTLOVE-MORE. That's all caps, DTLOVE-MORE. I'll post this code and the link in the show notes. Now would be a good time to invest in your feet. Welcome to the show, Ming Poon. So you grew up in Shelburne, Vermont, which is very close to Burlington, right? Yep. Talk about your youth a little bit and what it was. I love Burlington. It's an amazing place. Oh my gosh. We, my wife and I, we, or we both grew up there. My wife went to Burlington High School. I went to South Burlington High School. I grew up in Shelburne. There are these amazing places right on Lake Champlain, surrounded by mountains, just like Lake Tahoe, um, snowboarding nearby, all the lake activities. Um, there's a lot of public land, and it's just a really nice place. Um, you know, everybody kind of talks about, like, shopping locally here and, like, buying organic and, like, supporting local farms and things like that, and that's just, like, normal way of life and always has been in Vermont. Um, so yeah, it's a really nice place. Really good people. I feel like whenever you meet Vermonters in general, the standard of person is really high, um, expectancy at least. And um, yeah, they're just great people. Uh, it's a great state. We still love going back and visiting. Um, Molly, Molly's family's there. My family's still there. So we all often go back to visit family, friends, and to show our two boys where we're from. Yeah, I love that. You guys do go back quite often. Do you think, because you kind of brought it up, do you think there's a difference between the West Coast person and the East Coast person? Yeah, I mean, I think you can generalize about all different areas. Like, for example, people from L.A. or, like, you know, people from Tahoe or people from Vermont. Like, I can speak to Vermont and Tahoe a lot better because I've lived in them equally amount of time now. Like, I think, you know, Vermont like same thing like really good people like down to earth like i would say prioritize balance in life um and then like tahoe very similar like people really prioritize lifestyle and balance and community um and i think that's why it's such a it was a natural fit for me you know bigger mountains um beautiful lake um clean environment um those are all draws for us i think but yeah, I, I think, you know, when I meet people from Vermont, if they're from Vermont, immediately we have this bond because it's such a small place. There's only one area code, um, 802. And yeah, there's just really good people there. Um, and I feel the same about our community here. Yeah. 
Yeah. I asked because Aaron and I are always talking about, he's always like, oh, he's got that East Coast work ethic. And I'm like, hey, man, we've got work ethic here too. <laughs> but one thing I do know is that Vermonters love their beer. And they're they very do. proud of their beer. Very. I was at a premiere one time and I think probably four or five people came up and said, do you want to try the best beer in the world? And it was all different beers. And I was like, you guys are proud of your beers. Yeah, no doubt <laughs> they are. Well, do you know where the first like you know, big microbrew came out of there? No. It was Magic Cat. Oh. Yeah, we were in, I think I was in middle school at the time. It blew up, you know. Um, now there's like, I don't even know, probably at least 50 breweries that are more famous in Vermont. For right, but that was ahead of their time. Beer. Yeah, they would. They were just kind of like in the front of the trend. Same thing with like, um, uh, you know, like uh, Boston Brewery. Mm-hmm. You know, they got really big and did really well. And, or you know, Sierra Nevada here. Exactly. Yeah, Anchor Steam. Like, things, they were all like in the front of that. Um, but yeah, it's such a great place, you know. And so now there's all these like artisan beer makers and you know, small batch stuff, like exclusive people like wait outside like the Burlington Bev or wherever they get distributed, like on that one day of the week and you got to get your allocation, you only get like one or maybe two, six or 12 packs, you know, um, that's yeah. just how it is. Um, usually they're in four packs even actually tall cans. Um, yeah, it's a cool place. Um, work ethic though, I think, honestly, I think that probably got developed early, like through sports or anything. Just like working hard, being competitive, like liking a little bit of suffering. Mm-hmm. You know, I really like sports. I love playing soccer. I love playing lacrosse. You know, I love snowboarding and skiing. Uh, when I was young, I started snowboarding when I was like eight. Um, and yeah, I think that's really where the work ethic started, at least. For sure, it got refined over time and still is being refined, especially with my kids. Um, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I guess a lot of people work hard in Vermont for sure. There's a lot of blue collar people, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So. Totally. I love that. What ended up bringing you out to Tahoe on the West Coast? Yeah. So, you know, I had all these friends that were going to Boston and a lot of them were going to like, most of them were going to Boston, you know, and even like UC Boulder, which is another school I applied to. I got in, um, almost went to the lead school of business there. And like last minute, I remember like I decided like, all of those places were too far from snowboarding, even um, even Boulder. And I remember like Boston was like really high on my list. I was like visiting schools. I thought it was so cool, and like people were doing it. It was like such an East Coast thing to do, and they're really good schools. And um, I remember I like was lucky to like have this epiphany as a young guy. Like, turns out it was one of the best things in my life was that I couldn't. I didn't think I could be happy without snowboarding. And so I was like, okay, well, I need to be closer then. Like now I was like, you know, in Burlington or Shelburne or South Burlington where I was, where I lived, it was like still about a half hour, 45 at least to like the mountains and like really more like an hour to like Stowe and Sugarbush where I like to go. And, you know, they're pretty small mountains, pretty short season, not that much snow. Like at that time it was like super normal to be like 30 plus days without getting above zero degrees, you know? Um, and I had visited Lake Tahoe. My sister was going to school here. That was like kind of my portal. And funny story, she got there by selling my mountain bike. Classic yep, Took it, move. stole it, stole <laughs> my mountain bike, sold it and moved to California. And I was like, 
you know, I don't, I don't know if she ever told me. She told me later. Um, and but it turns out that was a good move because that's like got, got me to Tahoe, and I was like, wow, it was really nice. You know, I visited a couple times, and I was like, okay. And then what ended up happening is Sierra Nevada College, formerly Sierra Nevada University, now part of UNR, University of Nevada Reno, um, offered me a bunch of scholarships and grants, and I was like, okay, cool. And they're like five minutes from one resort. And then, like, within a half hour, you had, like, North Star, which I had visited when I had came here, which was, like, probably similar size to, like, a lot of resorts in Vermont. But then there was, like, Palisades and um, uh, Homewood, which was, like, cool. It was like, it was, like, the Bolton Valley of, you know, if you've been to Vermont, you know Bolton Valley. It's the best, like, mom-and-pop resort. But, like, Homewood was, like, the Bolton Valley of Tahoe. And then there was, you know, Alpine Meadows and... Not even talking about South Shore and Heavenly and Kirkwood and Sierra Tahoe. Like, there were just so many great options. Never even considered the backcountry at all at that time. And, yeah, I was like, okay, that seems cool. And then the school offered me a bunch of scholarships and grants, and it really just, like, settled it. Like, I could go to school for about seven grand a year when things were said and done, which was a big deal because, like, UC Boulder, I think at the time, it would have been cost me, like, 32 grand a year. Like, another school in Northeastern was, like, 35 I think at that time um you know and anyway and so that was sort of the thing that brought me so I packed my truck loaded it up like this little Chevy S10 two-wheel drive rear-wheel drive like truck it was the only car I owned forever um until I moved to China actually and yeah I started going to school it was great I worked at the library and got paid like seven dollars and 25 cents an hour so I could get paid to do my homework, which allowed me to like snowbird more yes. or climb more. And so like it wasn't a lot of pay, but it was two birds, you know, I got paid to do my homework. So I didn't have to like spend a block of time getting paid, like making some money and then another block of time doing my homework. And so it was a big deal. Um, and then I tried to structure my classes like so I could snowboard every morning or every day but like maybe tuesday and thursday i think was normally how i did in the winter like i would and i'd load up in the fall to take more like an extra class so i could take one less in the winter and still be on track to graduate in time things like that um yeah it was cool that was kind of the beginning and i just fell in love with the place fell in love with the people fell in love with the like the whole lifestyle and like just got so committed and then i met some other people that were doing the same thing um really special people that are still friends today um but, you know, some of the most influential, like my friend Roy first, you know, he owns Keen Shoes now. Um, and then Kyle Dempster, who passed away, two-time PLA door winner. You know, he became an amazing climber. We got into, I got into climbing because of him, essentially. Um, and, yeah, and then I think, like, I just got more into it. And I was like, okay, well, all these lines are great. You know, like the Squallywood book. Like, I tried to do all the lines, all these things. And, like, it was neat. I explored all of that. But then, like, it just didn't take long. It was probably a couple years, and then I was like, oh, what's this backcountry stuff all about? And how do I do that? So I started, like, snowshoeing. And then I was like, wow, this is super inefficient. <laughs> I'm, like, so tired. You know, I could do, like, one lap. You know, a half lap was, like, a big deal even. And, you know, you're carrying just – it's just so inefficient. <laughs> and, and then I saw, like, skiers, like, skinning. And I was like, oh, that's cool. And then I would heard about these, like, split boards – but like nobody like sold them at the time. But I had friends that were splitting them themselves. And so eventually that led me to a guy named Jim Zellers and who became a mentor and a good friend. And you know, I called Jim, I was like, hey, what's up with this? Like I, 
I, and he's like, well, we have these kits. Like, you get these kits and you cut it yourself. I can help you do it. You know, and you can put some epoxy on the edge so they last, last a little longer, you know, because the water gets in on the edge after you cut them, things like that. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. I got a couple old boards. I was like, well, I want to do one. I'll cut one. And he's like, and he's like, well, okay, well, you got to get the hardware from Volet. And it was like this puzzle, you know, and that was just the beginning of figuring it out. And that really just never stopped. It was like, okay, cool. Like, so we got these like cut boards and they were a little flimsy. They wouldn't usually last a full season or they would definitely not last more than a season. Like, cause they would just start like delamming essentially because the water gets in, you know, and then like it will refreeze and like all these things. Um, the skins were super heavy. There was like only one company Volet that you could get anything from. And, um, yeah, that was kind of that. And then I ended up getting a Volet split board. They started making them and then like kind of progressed. And then like everything changed. Like, I don't even know. It was probably around like, I want to say like 2007 or something. And maybe six when like more people just started making more stuff and like Spark R&D started, which was like a binding company and still is the best bindings that I use. Um, same thing then like Caracorum started. So then there's actually competition in this small niche space and snowboarding and everything just got lighter and better. And where we are today is just a progression of that. Um, so cool. Yeah. To think about how far it's come in just a short time, um, 15, 20 years. Um, yeah. And then, you know, that progression, like it hasn't stopped, like as gear gets lighter and better and more reliable, like we've just continued to chase new stuff. It's the same progress. Like, Oh, okay. You get onto a peak and you're like, okay, cool. Like, let's do another one. And you're like, all right, well, you're going to have more water and food and, or go faster or both. And or use the e-bike to access. Yeah, yeah. totally. E-bikes was a whole different thing. That was yeah. like a later phase. That was, <laughs> was so cool. Like now we use e-bikes and e-bikes like sort of extend our season but now we find ourselves using them year round because we're just accessing snow lines or accessing wilderness lines and they're like probably one of the biggest things since splitboarding for my splitboarding like which since splitboards the inventors like inventors of e-bikes had no idea totally and we helped explain that to them which is cool actually when like specialized like i became a client and we started talking and like eventually I was like, no, 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 like we really use these bikes all the time. Like we, we were using like rad bikes cause they gave us them first. And then like, you know, they were kind of in the front of it. And then like, we we're like, well, if we had like really nice mountain bikes, we go on single track, we go in the back country. We could ride like awesome train with like suspension and like longer battery life, like more rugged train, like all these things and like more power. Um, and yeah, now it's incredible. Like what we can do, you know, we use them literally year round. Um, especially for me, like with a camera pack, they're just a game changer. You know, I can often like zoom ahead of like, I'll use them for running shoots. You know, I could shoot and like zoom ahead, shoot again. You know, you're just getting a lot more opportunity. I'm not getting as worked, all those things. Um, but yeah, the biggest thing though for me is like, even for pleasure is these side, you know, we'll take them down and we'll ride them up to snow line or ride them past gates on dry roads you know, the snow that are often like our access points, these closed, uh, you know, they're mining roads or forest service roads or, um, Tioga pass, for example, all these things, like oftentimes they're dry and clear. Um, and you just, you know, we use them to get up there, just get to snow. And now like same thing with like washed out roads in the East side, you can take them and it's much faster, but also so much more fun. And, enables us to do these massive days so instead of like one peak maybe you're doing two 
yeah. because the e-bikes save you. You can do this big loop, chain them up, you know, and all these things. Um, and that's a, another progression of, you know, all the things, right? Like boards are lighter, poles are lighter, skins are lighter, skins have better glide. Um, the boards are more like durable and like reliable, like the bindings too. And then we have like repair kits that like go with them and they're not that heavy either. And packs are lighter, helmets are lighter, like <laughs> all these things like that have changed that have been amazing and kind of led us to where we are today. And which is exciting. You get to see a lot of the athletes that I'm lucky to shoot doing these really progressive and amazing things and often new um, or at least new to us, mm-hmm. um, which is, you know, you never know what's actually been done, I feel like, but often for sure there's some new stuff. Um, yeah. I love uh, that. I don't even need to ask you any questions. Perfect. <laughs> you can just take it away from here. Yeah. <laughs> but that is so true. Like, I think I'm trying to think back on when we would have met and I would have been in high school for sure. Like 15, 16 skiing in the park. You were with Pat Lee and Matt Lee. Mm-hmm. You were a little park rat for a minute there. Oh, heck yeah. Oh yeah. my gosh. When I moved here, I was, I was like this kid from Vermont and somehow I turned into this like little thuglet hanging out with like tech nine guys. And, like, <laughs> you know, Pat Lee was like, you know, these guys were from Pittsburgh and like Pat Lee, I lived with him forever. And his brother, Matt Lee, who lived here first and he's a little bit older and, those guys were awesome snowboarders, like always better than me, like amazing, like tricksters and rails and big jumps and half pipe. Like they could do it all, like natural tricks off of features, like, you know, um, you know, tricks off of cliffs, like all that. It was kind of like happening at that time. Like that was like when we're like, you know, Mac dog standard, like absent, they were fully sending and it was so cool. And they were all in Tahoe, like yeah. at least for part of the year, like, and many of them were based here. So, like, we had plenty of inspiration. It was cool. Um, super lucky. And I guess maybe that's why that was that there. And, like, North Star, like, right after I moved here, started building this amazing park. You know, I got – I hung out with the guys like Ricky Gatterdam and um, Josh Feliciano, you know, because, like, they were the best. Like, they were winning, like, triple crowns and making tons of money. In know. high school. Yeah, yeah, in high school, quote, unquote, tons of money. They, we were actually the same grade. It was like 2002 when I moved here, and we were both we were all 18. It felt like and, tons of money. Like, oh, it, it would, like, oh, yeah. pay for the limo to go to prom, pay for the after party. <laughs> house. Like, we were like, well, damn, totally. we just won the triple crown. Here and from go. a young guy from Vermont, I thought I snowboarded a lot, like, if I went, like, 30, 35 days a year, you know. Mm-hmm. These kids were snowboarding, like, 150 days a year. Yeah. And, like, not even trying. And, like, partying while they do that oh yeah you know they were like professional partiers and like having a good time but like winning and killing it um i think the partying ended up catching up a little bit maybe but like like all of us but like i just remember like they had so much influence on me and like i remember josh gave me boots i had these like osiris boots like ricky gave me a board that was amazing board um twin tips you know so like i was just like set up to do what they were doing kind of but like i was never that good Anyway, but I remember the day I met you. I'm almost sure it was the day. It was in the park at Palisades. And they at that time, they were, like, building big jumps, kind of like where they used to, like, put the old half pipe to or next to it. Yeah. And, like, and we had the Riv Jump Park, too. Yeah. But I remember I met you on the big jumps because there weren't that many people hitting them. And I remember you had, like, full face mask. Like, you might not even be able to tell that you were a girl. Like, and if I think it was like a hair whip or something, like that was like the only way because you were like fully masked, like gogs, like you know, whatever. I don't think any of us were even wearing helmets at the time, like it was like just a different time, you know. And you were probably 15, 
let me think. I don't know. I don't want to date you or anything. I'm like, you know, I I think you're a few, no, you're a few like years younger than me. On. Yeah, and I was like 18, 19, you know. And I just remember you were like hitting the big jumps and like spinning. I was like, what the heck? Who is that? <laughs> you know? And like there weren't like other kids just doing that. Like, yeah. And the fact that you were female too was like you were way ahead. Um, anyway, and then, you know, we became friends. Um Little did I know, like, we lived in the same area, like, you know, um, but it wasn't until, like, a little bit older, like, where, like, I remember, like, I saw you, like, on a boat at, like, a company party for porters, oh, I think, yeah. that Finn invited me to. Yep. And I was like, oh, she's cool, you know, she's pretty cute. And I was like, I wonder if she wants to go hang out and snowboard or whatever anyway. And, and then it, we ended up, I remember, like, one day I just, like, I think Squaw, like Squaw at the time, Palisades was like kind of blown out. I was like, I think we should go touring. And I think you were just there or something, or maybe we were snowboarding together a little bit at the time. You know, I was always snowboarding with like, you know, Elise and Cody and like this crew, George Jelty and Kyle yeah. O'Neill and like all these awesome rippers. They're always so much better than me and mostly skiers and so fast. And anyway, and I just remember like, I, I think it was like, and I was like, hey, you want to go touring? And you were like, yeah it seems like a good idea like you know it was like late this is like late morning at least yeah you know and, and i just remember like you know we went to emerald bay and then like later on we went to like jake's and stuff too and like which is like the place right it's like incredible like so amazing and beautiful and incredible terrain and all the things and you were like a huge big name pro at that time. Like when I saw you in the park, you weren't even like a big name yet. No. You were I think you were literally fifteen. Yeah. And it wasn't long though. I think it was like within two years you you know, everybody knew who you were, like locally. You know, that was like when premieres were like the thing to do. It was so cool. Like mm -hmm. Shane was here, Gaffney, like all the other pros, McGovern, like JT, like, you know, it was like there was kind of this like pinnacle time in skiing, like fat skis came out, like people were skiing backwards, people were taking off and landing backwards, like all this like newer stuff, like there were twin tip skis, like it was so cool, fatter skis, twin tip skis, like camber, like all these things that were changing and like allowed these like cool progression and skiing essentially, which made like the premiere super cool. Um, so yeah, I guess it wasn't just snowboarding at the time, it was like everything was like pretty special right then. It was like kind of this like golden time and you know, and then there was just these, like, charismatic, amazing people like Shane that really stood out. And then, like, him and JT were just, like, doing the craziest stuff that was, like, wait, what? Like, you can jump off of things and pull a parachute. Right. And then land again. Like, you know, like, it's <laughs> just, like, wait, so I guess, like, nothing's off. You can just do anything now. That's how it felt growing up here. Yeah. And at that, that time, too. Like, people yeah. were getting after it. And they were nailing it. Like, everyone was nailing it, like. You know, you can name, like, we're just talking about locals here, but, like, you know, you could go down the chain. There were so many big names from here, but, like, you know, and, and it's the same in snowboarding. Like, there was so amazing. And then people started, like, Rippy, I remember saw him, like, jump off Lover's Leap of the Snowboard and do, like, a flip. And I was like, oh, okay, I guess you can do that and pull a parachute. I was like, okay, it was definitely sketchy. Um, yeah, and, like, those guys were just nailing it and, like, making it look so fun because they 100% were having fun. And they were inspiring people left and right. And, like, the fact that I was in the community, like, you bet they inspired me. Mm -hmm. So I remember, like, I remember I was like, I'm going to do that. So I started skydiving. I was like, I thought it was so cool, like, jumping out of planes. And then I, 
you know, I think like whatever around 150 jumps plus maybe 200, whatever. I was like, cool, I'm gonna wingsuit. So I started wingsuiting. Eventually, I like flew a couple flights with JT and like some other friends, whatever. I started jumping out of helicopters. Like, it was amazing. Like, it was like crazy. And right around that time, I had like graduated school. I, you know, at the end of my school time, I had really focused on trying to like started like getting snow science education. Took a look at Avi One, um, started getting into like a little bit of like wilderness medicine, things like that. Um, you know, it just starts with like first aid um, and CPR. Um, but then, like, right after I graduated, I was just like, you know, ripping around Palisades with my friends like I normally do. And I saw Kevin Quinn. And we had become acquainted through friends like Kip Gar and some other, you know, friends. And, he was like, hey, we're looking for a fueler. He's like, I heard you might be a good pick, you know, a good, great, great fit. And he's like, you want to, you interested to come up? And like, he totally sold it. I'm sure he knew I wasn't going to say no. And I was like, yeah, I don't know. Like, you know, let me think about it. I talked to like two people. It was like Kip, Tucker Patton, who did it like the year before me. And. And this is fueling for points north Heliop. Exactly. In Cordova, yeah. Alaska, like heli skiing you know it's like mecca oh it's always been at the top of the list like how do we get there though right and this was it and i didn't really know anything and so i you know i was just like played it cool whatever and i talked to like a couple people more people in like the lift line that day that had like worked there one guy that was gonna go and they were like call him back right now and tell him you're gonna go they were like no no you gotta go and i was like i do and they were like yes and i was like all right so the next thing I know, I'm like making this 10-week commitment in Cordova, Alaska, this town that you can only fly or take a ferry to. There's no road there. And it was like one of the best decisions of my life. I like went up there like super hungry, frothy, like just starting to kind of get into like, you know, more snow science and like first aid, things like that. Like I might even have started taking some guide courses at that time. I can't remember. Um, but I went up there and I was just, you know, in awe. Like it was just like, two or three birds in front of this lodge and the orca inlet. It's like the most beautiful place I'd ever seen. Like so much snow, such big mountains. The terrain is really difficult to grasp with scale. And I was surrounded by guides and like really who I thought were cool people and mostly from my community, which was even cooler. Um, and I was just this young kid, you know, I was totally young and dumb and, over exuberant and full of confidence and you know just hungry like mm -hmm. i just wanted more and like guys like kip were super cool to like kind of take me under their wing and like show me how to go get more you know like we were touring all the time and like i learned i started like snowboard mountaineering at that time where we're like you know using crampons and ice axes and um yeah it was it was just sort of like the beginning for me i was i think i was like 24, 23, 24, anyway, and it was probably 2006 or something, and um, so I went up there, I did a full season, and then after I went and checked out, like, more of Alaska, you know, I got a bunch of laps, like, heli skiing, it was, like, just opened my eyes to this amazing stuff, and film crews, and people that really knew what they were doing, like, some really good guides, like, this guy Jimbo Fritch, Jim Fritch, um, He's, he lives in Cordova now, but he used to live in Tahoe, and he's just an awesome person, super grounded and humble and so good at guiding. Like, not just, like, savvy snow science and, like, being in the mountains, but, like, a really good guide. And 
that was like really good influence for me, you know, wanting to be safer, be a better partner, be able to take people, take friends, mm-hmm. um, in the mountains. I really enjoyed that kind of gravitated towards it. And so I kind of kept going, you know, more guide courses started getting into AMGA, um, and just pushed it every year. And then I, you know, I went back the next, after that I checked out like Turnigan Pass and, you know, later on after the season, I went to Denali one year, tried Hunter with Kip, um, failed on that one. Um, you know, went, checked out Juno, um, Chilcat Mountains, like Haynes, like it was super cool. I was just exploring, you know, it was, just, it was all about exploring and snowboarding really like, or seeing the world through snowboarding. I don't, for whatever reason, I, that was just my thing, I guess, cause I just loved it so much. Mm-hmm. Um, and then of course I love traveling and seeing the world, but like, it seemed like just normal and like the right thing to do to see the world through snowboarding. Cause I just loved it so much. And, um, and I was doing it with these great people. Um, and then things started to get a little weird, you know, we were all pushing it and like progressing. And I remember like Shane had an accent and it just devastated our community. And I wasn't like super close with Sherry or, um, Ayla was just a baby. Um, I wasn't super close with even JT or anybody really close to Shane at that time. Um, but it like hurt. He was such this like iconic and charismatic figure that everybody just loved and put on this pedestal as a person, as a father, as a skier, as an innovator, as a creative, um, with so many levels. And he was super successful. You know, it was like covers, starring segments, end segments, starting segments, like Stuff you'd just never seen before. He's like, cool, I'd jump off cliffs and wingsuit base jump after I cut away my skis and then, like, land safely. And it's, like, just normal thing that he just came up with because mm-hmm. <laughs> that was who he was. He, he was just chasing fun and really loved it. And so, you know, that really impacted me as a young guy. Like, I was just admired him a lot for, like, chasing his dream and doing whatever it took and, like, doing it his way. And, like, you know, of course, he had people that taught him things and, like, you know, we're all kind of standing on the shoulders of the giants that came before us, but like, it was a cool time. And so when he passed away, it really shook us and changed everything. Like I was like, okay, maybe like, I don't want to be a base jumper. You know, I was like the beginning of that, mm-hmm. but I still was like jumping to like thinking I wanted to be a base jumper. I wanted to go jump off half dome. I wanted to go jump off El Cap, which I shouldn't probably say because it's illegal, but, um, Things like that, like, you know, but when I was in Alaska, I was, like, jumping out of helis. It's, like, the best thing ever. It's so cool. I mean, like, you know, the, the acceleration from zero to a terminal and pulling lower to the ground, just visual stuff. It was just amazing. I felt like I was just young and chasing it all the time. And looking back now, like, for sure, I was on the line all the time. Um, you know, I had some close calls. Nothing that really, like, hit home and changed me, though. It was things like Shane that changed me. And and then Arnie died. Kip was my roommate at the time. He went on a trip. And, you know, Arnie fell and died. You know, and we can kind of always rationalize, like, what happened and how it won't happen again. But I was lucky to become friends with Andrew McLean. And Andrew McLean, one of the, like, guys I know with the most first ascents in the world on skis. And he was like, you know, he's like, we can always rationalize how, 
you know, things went wrong and how it won't happen to us, how we learned from that, you know, things like that. But like, he's, he's like, it's always something different. And Arnie was different. And then just a short time later, Kip died on Split Mountain with Allie, another really good friend of mine, his girlfriend at the time. And Kip was my roommate at the time. He was mentor and just like so close to me. And um, yeah, I was so shook. It changed everything. I um, I was so sad, and also like just it made me reflect on everything because I could have been with him. You know, we had talked about doing it together. I was gonna go. They were hitting a tight weather window that they they changed. We were gonna go later in the week. He audible to go earlier in the week and hit a tight weather window in between storms. And I was like, Nah, I'm gonna go to Yosemite with Molly my girlfriend at the time, my wife now, and we did, we went climbing, and I got, it was like one of the toughest calls of my life, and I'm kind of glad I was in Yosemite, I wasn't able to be on the search crew, didn't make sense, um, I remember like Jesse Bushy, and Rob Gaffney, and Glenn Polson, you know, a bunch of really good friends that I look up to a lot, and they, they went in there, and I knew that he'd be all right, they'd take care of it, but I just, it was just devastating, you know, because he was you know he was the guy teaching me and taking me under my wing his wing and like he was better than me and that was kind of like the beginning of like me really seeing like so many people better than me have gone in in different ways and I was like okay and that was where the risk started tapering I was probably I don't even know when that started happening like some somewhere in my mid-20s um and I was ramping up every year until then and like really fast and steep progression and just hungry. Um, and then Dave died. Dave Rosenberger died in an avalanche in Chimney, the Italian side. And I had just visited him. Um, I was actually living in China when I did that. I was later, but you know, close friends, you know, that were just awesome at what they did and better than me for sure. Better than me, stronger and all the things, more experienced. Yeah, Kip probably had maybe a little bit more formal education too, maybe. Um, and then, yeah, that was it. And I was still like all in on Tahoe lifestyle, but like I was like changing like my risk profile. Like I loved the idea of being a guide and being safer. So I like kind of doubled down on, you know, in that period too with like learning more and becoming a better partner, wanting to... I got my woofer, you know, uh, even looked into like wilderness EMT, took an EMD course, didn't become an EMT, but um, kept going with snow science, kept going with guide courses, um, and just getting a ton of experience and trying to just be better decision maker and partner. And then, and I was like living the dream. It was just, it felt so good. We were living in Tahoe. Like when I was living in Kip, like we were living in a house for $900 a month, split between three people in this like three bedroom, two bath house. Like it was awesome. Like it was like kind of the end of the ski bum era. That was yeah. like the end. Yeah. Like now, like I they, remember that house. Now yeah. the same house, like it would be so expensive, you know, like probably sure. like a thousand a room or something, who knows, you know, and still a pile of trash, but you know, that was it. We were thriving and loved it. We couldn't care less. Like it was just all about like focusing our energy into doing what we wanted to do and going those places. Like we wanted to go to, we wanted to explore the world and push it, do new stuff. And, you know, in that period, I had also met Jeremy Jones. You know, he became a really influential person, a friend, a mentor for sure. But we didn't really get together until later. Um, but anyway, when 
And then in 2010, my dad died. Super unexpected. I was like on my way to the airport to go visit him in China. He had moved to China, I don't even know, years before to start a business. And um, I was on the airplane, on my way to the airport, and my sister's boyfriend at the time was, he's like, hey, your dad's in the hospital. He's like, you got to come here right now. And I was like, well, I'm on my way there. Anyway, I landed and immediately went to the hospital and he was dead within 24 hours and um, super sudden, you know, sad thing because like if he was in Hong Kong or like anywhere probably in the U.S., he'd still be alive. Mm-hmm. Would have been a pretty basic um, stent probably in his heart. Mm-hmm. Um, it was his heart. That, and um, he's a super healthy guy, like young, 58. And like, you know, I have to like to think it was probably pollution related because he lived in China for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, but nobody really knows that, that, that one of the biggest mistakes too was like not getting an autopsy, which I should have done. Um, we were worried about people taking his organs in China. That's why mm-hmm. at that time, like it was a pretty big deal. I think even now it is like taking organs and selling them on the black market. Mm-hmm. So anyway, um, but yeah. And so my uncle was like, Hey, you know, your dad doesn't work for me. He's my partner. And I was like, oh. And he's like, yeah, he owns 49% of, you know, this part of Welltronics, which is like a 200-person, 200-employee business at the time and like a big business, um, buying electronic components from high-end components from like Japan, Korea, the U.S., Germany, et cetera, and selling to the China market for like manufacturing, like uh, new energy, automotive, consumer appliances, like home appliances, um, Auto, automotive and you know all these things um it's great business it's awesome and he tells me this and i was like whoa okay that's crazy what does that mean and he's like well it means it's pretty good business so you should come check it out so i'm there i'm spending time i'm dealing with like you know i'm like in so much trauma i'm like i just lost two of my best friends like i just lost my dad i'm all alone like not in the place that I'm familiar with. Like, I shouldn't say that. Not, for, not with, like, my friends and family, so to speak, that I, like, I'm really close with. Yeah. And later my sister was there with me, but not the whole time. And, um, you know, I just remember being, like, so shook and messed up and, and it, like, stressed. You know, you have to, like, plan stuff for, like, funerals and things. And being international, it makes it more complicated to, like, move a body internationally and all these things. But... Anyway, we, you know, we dealt with it and I remember I was so stressed. I I got shingles at like 26 years old, which is like not normal. Mm -hmm. I got them really bad. And, uh, I remember calling Molly. We had been dating for a while. I was like, Hey, like, this is crazy, but like, I think I might have to move to Hong Kong. And she's like, yeah, that's crazy. Let's talk when you get back. Like, you know, whatever, you know, things were really good, but we weren't dating that long. It was like probably around a year, a little less than a year. And. Anyway, I moved back to get went back to Tahoe and like kind of just continued to do what I was gonna do and made the decision like I have to go like if I don't go I'll never know. And, and is that like a part of Chinese tradition as well? Yeah, so I'm the oldest son, um, and so that's part of it. Like when you're the oldest son, you have these responsibilities. Like I had to like make all the arrangements. I had to like I'm sort of like the lead on everything essentially. And a big part of that was also like my dad had chosen me. Like before he died, he was like, hey, like something would have happened to me, some instructions, you know, things like that. And so I had to execute that. And I became the executor, um, an administrator um, of his estate. And I mean, that continued to like 
deal with settling that it was like i i don't even know 10 years wow it took a long time yeah um it was just really complicated um and unexpected and he could have planned better for sure um but anyway yeah and so like my uncle was like yeah you know that was offered to me to like come and check it out and as eventually he was like you should come take your dad's position and i was like well i'm just not qualified for that you know, I was like, I don't even speak Mandarin. And he's like, yeah, that's fine. You can learn Mandarin. You know, he's like, he's like, if you're anything like your dad, you can learn anything. Wow. And I was like, like, yeah, I guess he's right. And I was a really young, confident guy. So I was like, yeah, I guess. Like, if he says that, then yeah, he says I can't. I feel like I could, I always thought that I could do anything. Like, if he really wanted to, you know. And he was kind of empowering me. And he was like, I'll give you the everything you need to do that and I was like okay like you know and I just felt like I if I never went I just wouldn't know and I would regret it forever and so I came back and I was like literally living the dream with like no liabilities like nothing to care for like just free bird like chasing the dream selfish and like it was cool my dad like if I ever worried about like my mom or my sister or like all these other like bigger life things, he was just like, don't worry about that. He's like, you should just worry about improving yourself. Like focus on learning, improving yourself. He's like, try to read more always like try to read more. And like, and he's like, honestly, he's like the only one I'm jealous of that I know is you because you're doing what you love to do wow. and what you want to do. And he has like a lot of really successful people, you know? Yeah. He was a pretty simple guy. Like he liked to read and drink tea. And he liked to fish. Like, he liked snowboarding when he was younger, you know. And he's the one that got me into snowboarding. And, yeah, it was cool. And so, you know, I came back and I told Molly. And I was like, look, I'm going to go. I got to go. And I was like, things are really good. I was like, if you want to come with me, I was like, you can come. And you can just leave anytime you want. I realized that it's probably just not going to work. Because, like, this is a super nice place. Like, when I met Molly and Tosh, she had, like, three or four boyfriends. Like... <laughs> And there was like <laughs> ten more guys in line ready to like you know yeah she's they were really like special. they wanted to take her out to eat and yeah. date and you know shows like anything they could do with her they would like anyway and but things were good and um, I remember like right before all this like she was like yeah you know like I don't I don't want us to like see any other people you know and I was like yeah that's cool you know I was like so focused on just like myself mm-hmm. and. Then this came up and she's, she was just, she thought about it for so little time. She's like, yeah, I'll go. Taking a break to thank Anon Optics for supporting the show. Anon makes incredible products, be that goggles, helmets, integrated face masks, and sunglasses. They're innovative in the way that they create. And if you ask me, the product is the very best. Anon goggles offer a full range of lens tints, unique frame designs, and fog-free performance for superior clarity in any condition. I'll second that. Anon revolutionizes the performance of snow goggles with exclusive features like the Magnatech Quick Change Magnetic Lens System, MFI Magnetic Face Mask Integration, and Perceive Lens Technology. Every Anon goggle is co-developed with Anon helmets and face masks for a perfectly integrated fit that offers comfort you can feel and protection you can trust. Additionally, I'd like to shout out Sierra Nevada Brewery, another family-owned company doing good in creating a delicious array of beers and then some. Did you know they have mimosas? Hard kombucha? And their hop splash is a new love of mine. 
Watermelon, sea salt, lime, and mint is one of their kombucha flavors. It's delicious. Also, I just love their slogan, family owned, operated, and argued over. Sierra Nevada supports so much good stuff in the outdoor industry, what's not to love? Sparked by the spirit of innovation and curiosity, Sierra Nevada started brewing beers in 1980, but not after years of sampling with the home brewing kit the founder Kin picked up in 1969. They've got it dialed. And I was like, okay, wow. cool. I was like, yeah, all right. Bought our ticket, like bought our new phone so she could t- stay like connected. It was like the iPhone like three or something, you know, it was like new, it was cool. So she could like FaceTime her family essentially and like, you know, communicate, stay connected. Yeah. Have like, you know, a phone to just be connected. And like, so we went, we moved to Hong Kong. We're like these two country mice in Hong Kong. It was crazy. And then for two years, we, you know, we kind of, I kind of just got fed to the wolves. Um, it was really tough. Um, but we like found our people, we found climbers. So instead of snowboarding, like, you know, as much of the year, I just pivoted. I didn't have snowboarding as much. I traveled for it. I went climbing, climbed all over Asia and really the world. I was climbing year round, sweet, climbed my first 12, you know, things like that. It was like a big deal. I loved it. Um, and more importantly, I just found like my people like through that. And it was neat. Like we had, you know, we come from like the whitest state in the country. Vermont and then like we lived in this like blue white bubble in Tahoe and then all of a sudden like we're in the city and we're like we stick out we're the minority and we were having dinner like all the time with like people from like multiple countries you know we could have it'd be super normal to have people from five different countries sitting at one table like and we do that multiple times a night you know like things like that were amazing and really got me out of like the bubble like there was a steep like learning curve professionally and personally Talk about that professionally a little bit. Like I can't even, because I knew you before this happened. And first off, I was like, Molly's a saint. That's amazing. She's just going to China. Mm -hmm. And then I remember being like, and Ming, he's just like me. Like I couldn't even fathom going into a huge office building and like owning 49% of this company all of a sudden. Yeah, it was wild. Um, It was surreal more than anything um, and really tough. Um, In the beginning, first like, year and a half I would go to class every morning to learn Mandarin and then in the afternoon I'd go to the office and just try to keep up and speak I was speaking every day all day so I got my Mandarin got really proficient um I really enjoyed all of that like the learning curve steep and then at the same time like I was responsible for people like I had to be responsible and I had it was a total shift from where I was and what I was doing I had to be so considerate and thoughtful of these people because it's their livelihood it's their lives and luckily I think that like me who I am like more than anything I'm I'm, you know I feel like I'm a kind I want to be like a really kind and considerate person and empathetic and so like I think a lot of the employees really appreciated that I think some of them took advantage of it Mm. (laughs) you know like from a as a business guy like I had a lot to learn for sure I probably made some business mistakes but like in the end I think if you're good to people that's like more important and so I always try to remember that um but I got people in the company were never, for the most part, were just really awesome and kind and welcoming and cool. But I had to deal with like a lot of gnarly businessmen um, on an executive level. Um, the toughest for me were some of the Chinese with like low integrity, and then some of the Japanese, just like they call them salary men. They'll like they'll do anything to get their numbers and hit their target. And, mm-hmm. You know, including throwing me into the bus. 
um, or throwing one of my colleagues or something. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of things that, you know, like I said, I got fed to the wolves. It was, it was good though. In the end, probably cost a lot of money to learn some of the lessons, but, um, I think it was good in the end, especially for me, um, just to progress and, you know, professionally, it was like, I had to be, my head could have exploded with all the things I had to think about, you know? So I tried to surround myself with really good people, um, which is difficult when like your culture and language is so different. Mm -hmm. You know, my family speaks Cantonese and so I had to learn Mandarin for business and totally different. Um, I was even learning some characters, but for the most part I could get by without learning to read and write, but I needed to speak like well. Um, Yeah, and so that was, you know, it was just, it was cool. Like looking back, like I wish I missed that steep learning curve. Like I'll probably never have that again. I was really lucky. Like that was a gift of my position and the convergence of my life and my uncle mm-hmm. and you know a lot of things that just fell in line and allowed me this really unique experience. Um, Did any of your learnings in college for business apply? Yeah, for sure. Molly always asked me that. Um, I was one. Of, I was lucky. Like I studied business in college and I started international business as a minor and like my major was like business management and so. Yes, I was able to like refine all of that. I would even like, sometimes I would reference like old books and then what happened was is I was reading a ton. I was reading nonstop. Like before I was reading nonstop about guidebooks and mountaineers and like these stories of survival and all these things. But then I just shifted and I took like everything and focused like on business. The business became my new peaks and I would suffer to get to the top. And then I'd see a bunch more peaks that I had to get to. Mm -hmm. And I would read new books to get to those peaks and get more experience and like just start chasing all of those peaks in business. And it was cool because it was really similar, like the pursuit and my approach, just nonstop learning. And like I was so focused, like, and so like regimented because I had to be, I didn't have any time. I was so busy. And um, I remember like often I would take public transportation, which allowed me to read. I could read in the subway. And so I was like hammering through books. I'll never read that quickly again, I don't think. And um, it was awesome. You know, now I have two kids. I'm like in the complete opposite place where like I don't have like any time to read, it seems like. Um, and yeah, it was, you know, so that helped me like learn to deal with different cultures and be professional, like hit targets, set up like forecasts, you know, and try to be as accurate as possible. So, you know, budgets. Um, uh, HR stuff, human dynamics are always complicated. Um, contracts, legal issues, um, quality control issues, like so many things that could have been thrown at me and did. Um, it was it was good. Um, none of which I could have done honestly. And looking back, like I was so stressed, it was so much, like. And so tough, like if Molly didn't come with me, I don't even think I could have done it. Wow. I don't think it would have lasted. Yeah. Like I needed her support. Yeah. Like looking back, like, which is cool. And then that time, because we were both away from our family, it was just us, like we got really close. Like it was going to like make or break us. And it made us for sure. And when we were there for sure, like we became like committed to each other. And, you know, at some point I remember Molly like, we were having so much fun. Like we we're traveling and living this expat exact life and it was great. But like, it wasn't for us. It was like this polluted cities we were living in, you know? And like, none of our family was there. And like, we're from Vermont. Like, 
I want to know like where my food comes from mm -hmm. and that like the earth that it came out of is clean and good and the water was clean is clean and good that went into that food and the drinking water that I'm drinking is good and like you had to check that at the door in China like you couldn't know and that was so tough for us um mostly I think because of our history mm -hmm. where we're from and so Anyway, you know, at one point she's like, kind of right after like things were really smooth and going so well, she's like, well, are we ever going to leave? Like, when are we going to leave? And I was like, I don't know. And she got really upset. She didn't like that answer. She's like, what do you mean you don't know? And I was like, I don't know. I was like, you know, I just kind of got into the groove. Like, things were good. Like, you know, I feel like I've seen this huge runway and great future. Like, and, but she was right. Like, we got to go home. Like, we got to go back. Like, we want to get married and have kids. Like. We're not going to do that here. Mm -hmm. um, just it didn't work for us, like the environment, particularly the pollution and the food. Mm -hmm. And But the food is also really good, right? Oh, my gosh. The cuisine and food is amazing. We're eating, like, food from all over the world and, like, Chinese cuisine from all over the country. Like, it was the best. But, like, you just don't know the quality of the sourcing and stuff, you know. We never got, like, sick or anything, but, like, it doesn't matter. Like, like hormones and, like, our yeah. meat, like, pe uh, uh, antibiotics, like, check that out the door 100 percent, and like for sure china is like the biggest producer of synthetic um producer and user of synthetic um uh, fertilizer you know so like often we ate vegetarian and like the same deal we're like worried about the vegetables we're eating and so it was like this non-stop like thing in the back of our head and got stressful you know like are we killing ourselves like you know and the high you know here in the u.s like the thing that kills most people is heart disease or it was at the time and in China, it's cancer. Mm. Mm -hmm. You think it's related to the pollution? I do. Yeah. And so, and I think it was also related to my dad's death. And that was like something that I was like, you know, I'm not going to let that happen to me. Because it's not going to be me. I don't care about money. I never did. It was never like my motivating thing. And easy to say when you're like this privileged kid, whatever. You know what I mean? Like I've always been like privileged, so to speak. But like reality was, is like I was never like motivated by money. Mm-hmm. Or at least it wasn't the primary motive, I should say. Um, and so anyway, we were like, cool, we're going to move back. So we moved back to Vermont, moved back to a bunch of our stuff. And I was like, cool, I'm going to set up something in like Tahoe. Like, we moved back specifically like right before the next winter. I was like, well, I'm not going to miss another winter. And luckily when I was gone, it was like three or four years of drought. Right, you kind of It was crazy. It was that. crazy. Yeah. It was so, I remember I came back and visited and like we were like ice skating and like climbing in the valley, in Yosemite Valley, like yeah. in t-shirts middle of winter because like Tiago Pass was open because there's no snow the road was dry things like that and so yeah I kind of nailed that um and the year I moved back I remember I just touched base with everyone before I moved back and rented this cool place at the bottom of old mill the old mill for my friend Wolf Schaefer Wolfie and it was like cool we got like six months there and we'll just figure it out and I had been like looking at houses for years like I'm going to buy a house in Tahoe, like years, especially 2011 was a great time to buy and just never like found the right fit or pulled the trigger. And anyway, and then we moved back and I immediately kept started that process. I was like touring houses and checking it out. My friend, Glenn Polson, who's a realtor, is a realtor. And um, yeah, we kind of just got into it and got into that first winter. And I remember I was like, cool, I'm just going to follow like the advice of all these photographers that I had. You know, in China, like Corey Rich was like, I remember Corey Rich, Corey Richards, I had met like a 
show in Beijing. And he's like, we had dinner after, and his wife Liv at the time. They were really cool people, and they still are. Um, he's like, yeah, anybody can do this. He's like, you just got to carry a camera around and just keep shooting, and even better if you can like do it with people you love. Like, and I was like, yeah, cool. And I was so I was like, okay, like I have the mountain skills, I have the business skills, like. Like I have the friends, like, you know, Pondello is like, yeah, your biggest resource will be like the athletes. Like you're going to be in Tahoe, like, you know, them all, like that's huge. It's like, that's the biggest part of it for at least we're like what I do and what you're trying to do. And I was like, I had no clue. I was clueless. I was like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. So, you know, when I was in China, right before we came back, like I'd really started digging into it, got some help from my friend Jonah Kessel at the New York times. And he was like, this is the camera I think you should start with. And and just start shooting your brains out and shoot everything you love and just that you're, you can keep interested in. And, and Jonah like, moved to China the same time you moved there, right? Yeah. And so, yeah, it's like convergence of people, you know, in my life. And like, so I grew up in Shelburne, Vermont, and Jonah did too. He was a little older. We went to school together. And then Jonah moved to Tahoe and lived here when I lived here. Worked for like the Tahoe Daily Tribune. He's like, you know, formally trained as a journalist. Um and then eventually moved to China, became a freelance journalist and like creative, you know, mostly for video and was doing really well. And then the New York Times picked him up. And I think that happened when I was there and he was psyched. He was crushing. And I think he, he won his first Pulitzer, I think, while there. Wow. Um, for reporting on the Chinese government. If I remember right at the time, it was uh, Xi Jinping or the guy before Xi Jinping. And... He won a big award, a bunch, and his whole team did too, you know, the, the Pulitzer Prize. And um, anyway, so we lived there at the same time. And so he became like my first, like, real go to mentor in the creative space and like the photography. And luckily, like, I could go back to guys like Corey Rich, who I'd worked with in Tahoe as like an athlete or as like a whatever support guy. And then same thing with um, Pondella. And like, I just reached out to everybody I knew Court Levy, Kiyoki Flag, like, they were all influential and helpful. And provided something that I could take and kind of make it my own. And I knew I had to make it my own. And guys like Jonah, though, like I could like go to and get like real critique and like learn how bad I was essentially. And it, it really, but <laughs> it didn't friend, just. He's going to give it to you straight up. Yeah. And it was like, you know, real like that critique that you just wish you could get more often from people, but like nobody's like willing to do it because they don't want to hurt your feelings or mm -hmm. something like that. Like, and he asked, he'd asked me like, how like deep do you want me to go on this? Like, do you want me to give it to you? Like, you want me to really try to help you? You know, like, do you want me to do this as if I, you were working for me? And, and like the answer is always like, yes, because we're really close friends and we still are like, you know, and yeah, it was so helpful for me early on. Um, you know, when I was a kid, like my mom got me started on this film Minolta camera. I started shooting in like the Adirondacks and I was the same deal. It wasn't much different. I was shooting things that I loved, like eagles and landscapes pretty big landscapes like that's right i have a big yeah. burger it's a true story i'm a big burger i always have been loons shooting loons still shoot loons and eagles by the way and um and landscapes and um but i was so bad like i remember i'd get rolls of film back and like maybe one out of ten was even capable you know but like film was different but like most importantly it was like i didn't have anybody to tell me how bad i was like i think if somebody did and i knew that and i really felt that in my heart i just never would have been interested in it right so I was always loved photography because I just it was just something that was for me. And then even better if I shared it with people and they got like love and joy and pleasure out of it, like whatever that feeling is, like that was more rewarding for me. And so that's where kind of where it all started. And like so when I came back, like immediately I 
you know, I tapped into everything like those guys and they just ripped me apart. I learned how bad I was. So I kept, but they were like, just keep shooting, just keep shooting. And Jonah was like, you're unique because of this, like my history here, my mountain experience, things like that. And he's like, and your friends and where you live. He's like, go after that. And I was like, yeah, that makes sense. And so first calls were Michelle Parker and Cody Townsend and Jeremy Jones and, you know, who are Elise Sogstad and like, you know, all these people that are like living in the town that I moved back to and that were pros, like big name pros. You guys were all like top three, you know, at that time, like for sure. Like, and, you know, I'd won every award, you know, skier of the year, segment of the year, line of the year, like you name it, female of the year, male skier of the year. Like you guys won it all. It was cool. And like, I came back kind of like during all that and I was so lucky. I didn't realize how big of a deal it would be. I was just kind of clueless, honestly. And, but luckily I knew a little bit of the ski industry and I knew you guys and you trusted me to at least go out with you. Like forget about taking photos. Cause I'm sure I was just not good, especially compared to the like great guys you guys were going out with all the time, all over the world, you know, but you were all so kind and, and honest you know, I remember asking you and I was like, tell me, you know, like, what can I do better? Like, you got any ideas? Like, and I still am like that, by the way, like you guys are all hyper creative and so experienced and good. Like you still help me be better. Um, but that was like the beginning and like, it's still without a doubt, the biggest reason why I had any success in photography was the athletes that I was friends with already and that were so successful. And I was able to shoot photos of you. And if I got a good one, great, cool. And it started with me like getting published and like giving, getting accreditation and which takes at least a year, right? Cause you got to take photos and then you got to put them in the, waiting for the publishing cycle. And then maybe brands will buy it. Like luckily you guys are all made people. So like all these brands that sponsor you became interested in photographs of you. And so then I started, you know, relationships with all those brands. And then that just keeps snowballing. Those people at those brands sometimes went to different brands the brands got bigger and I grew with them. Um, you know, they started buying one photo. They started buying one photo for under like market rate, you know, it's like whatever reason, ski budgets, this, that. And then we grew together. It was cool. And that was kind of how it went. I started working with more athletes. I started working with new athletes, new brands. And, and then I started even getting gigs like outside of like, um, outside of like, you know, snow. Because, like, the same outdoor brands would hire me to, like, shoot something else, like, whether it's running or an event or, you know, other sports usually, um, or a, a product. Um, and my biggest break came in the second year, 2017, being a full-time creative. Um, we had just gotten, like, seven feet of snow, like, a foot of rain, and then, like, seven more feet of snow. And I was at OR trying to sell myself and, like, get into the scene and, like get new clients and like doing the things that I thought I needed to do. Trade shows were like kind of in at the time and a bunch of my friends were there. And I remember I raced back with Jeff Dosty and oh my gosh, Matt Ghibli, I think. Yeah. From OR got a, picked up a ride, you know, whatever. And I called Cody. I was like, Hey, I got the shot. I want to go do. I was like, are you home? I was like, can you want to do this? Called Michelle. And I was like, Hey, I got the shot. I was like, are you home? I just want to do, I want to do this. Luckily, both of them were like, yeah, okay, man, like, cool, like, let's go check it out, you know, whatever, like, Cody just kind of had this idea, he always wanted to get a shot on the East Shore, and the stars just aligned, and I remember, like, there was this inversion layer in Tahoe, and we, 
tried to get above it. We couldn't that first day just for timing and things like that. We ended up getting some great shots, like in this cool ping pong ball, like turned like pink, like with light, like sunset light reflecting off of the upper clouds, I think, and then back into the, like the inversion layer. But we were all like, okay, this could be really cool. We get it. Let's kind of go back tomorrow. So we went back the next day and we got above the inversion layer. We were way early. We sat on top for like probably an hour waiting for the best time to drop in. Somehow Cody drew the short straw and got to go first and, he always does. No, I know, kidding. huh? I know. We can give him crap forever now about that. You're going first for sure next time. <laughs> no, and um, and man, we had talked about it and set up the shot together. It wasn't me. Like, I had, like, a lot in my head, but, like, a lot of this, like, all the best stuff always ends up happening, like, improv. Like, you got to take what you're given and do the best with it. Like, even if you have this creative plan, like, you need to be able to adjust. And you guys are so creative and cool and patient and pro um that like you know it was just kind of came together and like once in a lifetime shot where like you know cody nailed the turn nailed the timing the light i remember i like it was one of the first manual action shots i ever took because i was focused on a spot because i knew i couldn't miss it yeah i couldn't risk like the autofocus like not picking it up or something or like focusing on a wrong spot you know all those things and Ended up being the 2018 Powder Mag Boat of the Year. And from then on, every time, like, anybody was like, hey, we want Ming to come on this shoot or come on this trip, people were like, oh, yeah, cool, we're a ring photographer. Like, that checks out, cool. We That's can do that. That's pretty quick, though. I've got to say, like, you were incredibly resourceful. You were like, this is what I want to do. You called all the right people. They gave you advice. You got that critical feedback. You went to the trade shows. You, like, established those relationships. I don't think that's super normal for, like, two years in. You win photo of the year. That's a huge deal. But I think that also shows that, like, when you were in China, you learned so much stuff that was applicable to the business side of the sport. Yeah, for sure. And I was, like, serious. Like, I wanted to be good. Yeah. And I wanted to be pro. More importantly, I didn't want to let down like the people I was working with, like you guys. You guys could have worked with anybody. Like, I didn't want to let you down. I felt it was my job to get you published and like make you look good, and like, and that just continues today. Honestly, like it's not that much different. But like, yeah, for sure, all those skills, like being creative, like it's this culmination of my life. Like those snowboard skills, like you can't be fumbling with your gear if you're gonna try to keep up and get shots. Yeah, you can't be out of shape. Like if you're hanging out with professional athletes, like and need to be able to like, they're not gonna wait for you, like. They can go out with anybody, you know? And so, like, the, all that stuff was a big deal. And then I think even bigger deal was on the backside was, like, being a professional. Like, okay, I'd import the images. I'd try to make them look as good as possible. I'd try to organize them. Like, my digital asset management just gets better and better, you know? Like, making sure their files are protected. And then how do we share them? Like, how do I get them to the right people? Like, okay, cool. Created spreadsheets of, like, contacts, publications, brand contacts, like, athletes, athlete sponsors, like, so I was just organized and I could like keep up and like there's no way I could keep it all in your head, you know? And so mm-hmm. like that all came from business side, right? And then contracts came easy, negotiating came easy because of that experience for sure. Like it helped. And so yeah, I, I think like that back end stuff like that nobody sees was a much bigger deal. Like Jim Zellers like taught me really early on like, you know, the key to success like for just about anything. I think this came from Jim. Um, is like you know the raw skill set is like only 33 percent of it mm-hmm. so let's say i'm the best photographer in the world that's only 33 percent like of like what it takes to be successful and then the other 33 percent is like your business skills and then like who you are the last 30 percent and like do people that want to hang out with you like 
you know what I mean? Like, do they trust you? Like, and the business side is just being pro, you know, like all the things like accounting, you know, contracts, digital asset management, editing, delivery, um, being responsive, um, being available, you know, all those things. And like, but honestly, like the biggest thing that like, like all those skills, like I'm not like special. I think anybody could do it. You just got to want to do it. And my motivation was like, I just didn't want to let people down. And like, I was hungry too, to make it myself and establish myself. But like, I just didn't want to let anybody down. I didn't want to let Molly down. I didn't want to let you guys down. I didn't want to let the brands down. I didn't want to let the publications down. Like, and so that just carried forward, like all this motivation to like, just be as good as I could. And like, I was always like dedicated to like, just, you know, that went back to like early years of like my dad being like, focus on yourself, like Mm -hmm. be the best person you can be like, and drive for that. And it never ends. Progress progression still goes. And but anyway, yeah, as a creative, I was super lucky. Like that really just helped me bump up. And then I started shooting, you know, like MSP and Matchstick and like whoever, like and all these brands and went on amazing trips. And um but the biggest thing that like, you know, helps make a living here in Tahoe where it's gotten really expensive to live is um the brands, you know. And, you know, I get one good photo of you or one good photo of Jeremy and you know, Cody, like Elise, etc. Like I have so many opportunities to sell it. Yeah. And yeah, that's like been the bread and butter, I would say. Um, and then I'm lucky now, like I've been able to branch out. Um, you know, now I'm in a different phase of life where like I'm really steadily trying to reduce my risk. In 2020, you know, we had the pandemic, but I also had my first son. And like when I was pregnant with Molly, like, or sorry, when Molly was pregnant with Cam. Um, <laughs> When I was playing with Cam, like my first son, I was like, I just like knew I wanted to reduce my risk. And then as soon as he was born, I knew that I wanted to like travel less. Yeah. So I started saying no to like higher risk jobs, like glaciated terrain or like, or just like when I was out with guys, you know, people like you, like be like, yeah, cool. Like you guys go up there. I'm going to shoot the Barbie. Like I don't need to do that. Like it's above exposure or like glacier train or just like stiff, like, you know, whatever, like I could fall, like, you know, whatever it is, like just trying to reduce my risk and keep my priorities in line of like being a dad, um, which still is a progression. Um, and even with that said, like, you know, we all have risk, like we all drive. Driving's risky. Yeah. Being in the mountains is risky. You can't take the risk out of it. So as long as you're going to go to the mountains, there's going to be risk. As long as you drive there's gonna be a risk and i've just come to accept that um but i still want to try to reduce my risk and eliminate a lot of objective danger like a lot of those bigger mountains have um especially like you know six to eight thousand meter peaks or like glaciated terrain like there's a lot of things um exposure double exposure you know that when i was younger i would seek out because that was like a means to go to new lines and new peaks and get really unique shots that nobody else could taking it back with that um yeah and i had my second son 11 months ago so it kind of just continues with that i said no to like 45 days of work i think the last two seasons in the spring just because it was like didn't make sense for me to leave my family for two or three weeks and you know involved glaciated terrain etc and like that hurts but it's also like opened up new opportunities to like say yes to like just started shooting different things, new things. Um, in 2020, I started selling real estate. And yeah, just like hedging, like, you know, age. Uh, if I get hurt, um, 
my risk tolerance, like all these things. I just want to have like his best options for like my family. Mm-hmm. And so far so good. The progress continues, progression continues and just so grateful for everything and to like live here in Lake Tahoe. And I feel like my kids are living my dream. I feel like the luckiest dad in the world. I got two young, healthy you know, three and 11 month old boys. They're that are so just... full of energy. Cam in particular, it's mm. my favorite. I yeah. can be, I'm like here for the energy. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, That's what I, I don't know. I sometimes I feel like I ramp them up, mm-hmm. but often I'm like, I can just be the little energy escaper. <laughs> yeah. They feed off energy for sure. Especially the older one. Yeah. He's uh Campbell. He's, it's the best. And like having people like you around is awesome. Like our community is so awesome for that. Like I realize like, more than ever how big of a deal it is just for them to be exposed to i think energy is good like i was a high energy person me too i think my whole life everybody's like whoa dude turn it down like take it back like all right hey like not appropriate right now like, you know etc 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 but like since having kids like i remember the first one i was like wow i'm tired and since i had my second i'm just always tired yeah so i think my energy has changed a lot but like um i'd like so value that energy that like my son has and like people like you have and like when you get that together it's kind of amazing what can happen Mm -hmm. like positive energy and like essentially i just feel like you can do anything Mm -hmm. and so to see that it makes me really happy um to see it in him yeah and yeah it's cool i think like so much my focus goes to them these days like it's just like if I get a small window to go do something, it's a big deal. Yeah. Whether it's to go get some exercise or spend time with Molly or even spend time with one of them one-on-one. Yeah. You know, all those things. Um, Just so busy trying to like provide for the family and yeah, it's cool. Um, In terms of like photography, like, you know, I've been able to, uh, you know, saying, like I said, no to some of this stuff has opened up a lot of great opportunities. Like recent shoot I did um, was with uh, Showtime you know, for like a high profile boxer and like a TV series. And, um, I've also tried to like create more purposeful work, like something that my kids would be proud of. You know, I've been working with Protect Our Winners since pretty much the inception, like since there was like one employee at Protect Our Winners and then three and now I don't even know how many there are, but it's like a big organization and we've continued to work together. And one of the things I'm most proud of that we, I just did a trip to Alaska this summer and I think it'll be annual. We'll just keep doing stuff around the Arctic Refuge, the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. And um, pulled in by my good friend, Brennan Legassi. Um, again, it's just like a culmination of everything, like the relationships, the skill sets. Like It's like that expedition skill set meets creative skill set meets like environmental advocacy skill set, like conservationist skill set. Like, um, of course, there's some business always. Um but more importantly, like something that I think like my kids would be proud of that I tried to do to like leave them a better world. Like, and like something like the Arctic, I think is just so amazing. And in line with that, we just received really good news from the Biden administration saying that they're going to lift, um, cancel all, um, of Trump administration's oil leases in the Arctic, which is amazing. Yeah. And the Arctic refuge provides like the last four or 5% of the north coast of Alaska that's not open to drilling. And it also happens to be the um, uh, a huge carbon capture with permafrost, um, hugely biodiverse, um, and the breeding ground of the porcupine caribou herd, which is uh, 
really how like the many of the natives have survived for generations um in fact the Gwich'in people you know they've always been a nomadic um people until you know to become recognized by the u.s government they had to get a post office and like a location so to speak which is happens to be like arctic village is like the center of that and the porcupine herd they it migrates thousands of miles and they depend on the caribou like their way of life is surrounded by the caribou and um where the porcupine caribou herd goes to breed on the north slope of alaska the plains um, just north of the brooks range is um where they want to drill and it would be devastating to the porcupine herd and thus also devastating to the Gwich'in people in their way of life and um you know i'm i'm not the most educated and most experienced or best person to speak to it but like after visiting and learning more about it like i get why so so many people get so impassioned and also like want to protect it and then really important to me and related also is that it's like the front lines of climate change Mm -hmm. like we're keeping oil in the ground we're protecting a way of life of these people we're protecting biodiversity and fighting climate change you know permafrost is good it's carbon capture and then also like there's reasons to keep um, oil on the ground. And one of the things I love is um, the Gwich'in name for where the porcupine herd breeds, like the, the plains. Um, I can't say it. Like, I don't know how to pronounce it properly, but it translates as um, the place, the sacred place where life begins. Mm. And it's so sacred they don't go there. And I love that. And I think, like, everybody can learn from that like there are some places that are so sacred like we should just leave it alone like how about that yeah and yeah and turns out if we had followed the way of natives um whatever we could have had so many moments in history where we could have we'd be in a lot better place right now with climate change and I think also just living sustainably and, you know, amongst each other. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, that's a, a cool project that I'm really passionate about. And I think, like, looking forward, I think I'll continue to do things like that um, and hopefully uh, incorporate more people like you, <laughs> people that want to create, you know, be involved in, um, in the change, of positive change for, like, the next generations and for the health of our planet, clean water, clean earth. Mm-hmm. Um, clean air, you know, all those things that I learned how much I really valued when I was living in China. Yeah. You yeah. don't have it, man. You don't have anything mm-hmm. like, and so, uh, so grateful for all that, that we have. And hopefully our kids will have similar opportunities to live in a place like we have now. And so it's sort of like a little more mm-hmm. meaning to a lot of the work I choose to take on and yeah. places I decide to go and people I decide to be with. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm lucky to be surrounded by so many amazing people doing amazing things as athletes, as creatives, as educators. Um, uh, geez, businessmen. Yeah. Um, A lot of businesses, you know, I love what John snowboards is doing. I love what Patagonia is doing. Um, so many brands are really being more conscious of it now too. Like when we were younger, it just wasn't like that. Yeah. So, yeah, we spoke a little bit about risk tolerance and how that's changed and, I mean, I know that when I'm out in the mountains with you, I always really appreciate how vocal you are about like what risk 
is lies in front of us and what we're willing to do and what we're willing to manage. And for me, looking back on my career, I can certainly pinpoint moments where I said no and I turned around. And I don't know, are there any recent moments for you where you were in the mountains and you like turned a whole crew around in a big production or whatever that may have been? Yeah, you know, over the years, like we've said no a lot. Um, Glenn Polson was like always the best. He was one of the biggest mentors. I feel like I wouldn't even be alive without him. Like Glenn, like he really taught me like he's done, him and like Andrew McLean are like the people that I know that have like the most first ascents. And he taught me to be patient to like wait like if it's not like the right time don't do it and if it's not gonna be good conditions you should also not do it he's like the king of finding the best snow and best terrain for that day and i really respect that and like i've tried to like be that guy and as a creative it turns out that's a really good winning formula too you want to be at the best snow at the best time that day with the right athlete and you know and that includes safety you know like always safety right but like you know like i said there's always risk but like for sure like we want to make sure we're not like the mountain's not going to fall down on us or like we want to put ourselves in the best position to be successful so yeah i think like we've turned around a lot um but unfortunately like we're all human and we make mistakes um and i had one in january of this year where i was out with two athletes one from here one visiting um super awesome and savvy people trusted partners like love them as people and as pros and um you know their skill set's incredible for sure better than mine i would say um in every level um and one of them is actually a professional guide also like trained formally um anyway we were in terrain i know really well ramping up through the day we had had a great day already shooting and kind of just stuck my neck out too far trying to get a shot I remember like I was kind of in a, I was pushing a little bit probably like trying to move in a little quickly, a little more tired later in the day. Like, and I just ended up sticking my neck out too far and I got smoked by an avalanche. I got super lucky. Um, I was totally engulfed, but like I was knew I was heading towards old growth and I kicked my board up as I was kind of fighting in it and I smashed into a tree right between my legs and my board. And essentially I was like, because of that, I was like in a tree well and the avalanche just went right over me. And I was left with this pocket between me and the tree in the tree well. And my back was, f you know, like filled up, covered up to like the back of my head or my shoulders. And I was able to like kind of like shimmy forward and throw my pack around and start digging myself out. And, you know, if I'd hit anything, I'd probably be dead. If I hit my head for sure, if I hit the trunk of my body, if I hit anything else, I like would have broke it. And uh, there was just so much power. So I was really lucky and I like to tell the story because I just hope that like, you know, other creatives, like when they're out there, like they know that there is that risk. Like I'm not the first photographer like that's happened to. Like I've talked to, I remember talking to Lel about it after another professional that I respect a lot from here, Avalanche Forecaster and a professional guide and lots of experience in Alaska as well as here. And she was like, oh yeah, she's like, there's a lot of photographers that's happened to. She's like, you're not the only one, you're not the last so by hearing this story, I hope that a lot of creatives, like, one, know that, like, there's a lot of risk associated with the kind of photography that I'm known for um, and that I love doing. Um, and, you know, you just see the beautiful photos usually, but, like, the risk is real. Like, I could have gotten smoked. Yeah. And at the time, I had a three-month-old and a two-year-old. Like, it would have been, like, 
a lot of our other friends that we've lost. Yeah. Like incredibly sad and tragic and just horrible. And I was so bummed to myself, just kind of devastated, honestly. I still am like shook by it. It's less than a year later and I'm like, it's tough. Um, but I hope that by people listening to this or that hear about the story at all, like I can help save them even once or one incident. Like there's no shots ever worth it. It's good to like pump the brakes and just always put yourself in a good position to be lucky, like be safe. Like I could have shot from anywhere and like I chose this one spot and then I kind of second guessed it and then I stuck my neck out even further and I, both probably would have been bad. For sure the second was worse. And so and it was just human error. I didn't, I, I knew the snowpack, I knew the terrain. I knew everything, the risks associated and I just made mistakes. Um, like all humans do. And so I, you know, I hope it's a reminder to everyone, including myself to like really stack the deck in your favor, um, mitigate the risk and try to be conscious of that. And like, and we're doing it together. Like oftentimes, like I need to call out for the athlete, like something I'm worried about for them or for me and then vice versa. You know, we're looking out for each other cause we're a team. Um, I'm reserting my woofer this weekend to like stay current, you know, like I had an incident where like a friend was skiing and I watched him. I happened to be the first responder because I watched it happen. Wasn't skiing with him or anything, but he was above exposure, took a big ride over a cliff, like I don't even know, over a hundred foot cliff and survived miraculously. And because of, I had just reserted my woofer, which I've done for, I don't even know, 15 years now or so. Like, um, I knew exactly what I could do and couldn't do and what I needed to do. And there was no questioning it. And that just helped my mental space so much. And also I think our response and it ended up saving his life. Turned, 100%. turned out it saved his life. And now he's still one of my closest friends and stronger than ever, I would argue. And an inspiration in a lot of ways. But like, you know, like that's it. Like that's why we do all this stuff to like support each other and to give ourselves the best odds. And when things do go south, like try to be prepared and take care of it. Cause inevitably like it will, like at one point or another it will. Yeah. I mean, I remember that day I wasn't with you guys, but you, correct me if I'm wrong, you called the helicopter before you were even at his side. Yep. Because you saw what happened. You were shooting him from quite far away. Mm -hmm. You weren't necessarily with him, like right. in that zone, right? And you called the rescue helicopter before you even got there, which I think that timing made all the difference. Yeah, I agree. It turns out it did because the time response was actually really long because of where we were. It was tricky. So. What happened was, is I was skinning up the ridge and in communication with my friend, he's like, okay, cool. Like we're going to rip this line real quick and then come back up and meet you guys and we'll link up. And I was like, oh, cool. I'm on the ridge. I'll shoot you skiing it just cause I can. So I actually shoot the, shot the whole thing. And as it happened, there was so much snow. I didn't even see him go off, but I knew through my view, like I looked at the photos and that like later and I saw, like I shot the whole thing. I just didn't know it. And, um, I thought I was just shooting snow going off the cliff, you know, but then after I was like, oh wait, he's not there. And I couldn't see him or anything, but like I knew what had happened, you know? And so right away, I actually didn't call 911. I called my friend, Glenn Polson, who I knew would know exactly where we were and who to call. And he also didn't call 911. He called Calcutt, Matt Calcutt, who is a medic on the heli and also CHP guy. And so immediately, like, I'm sprinting and I catch up to Brennan, my partner that day. And I was like, hey, there's an accident. We got to go to John, follow me. 
we traver we flipped over, changed over, traverse, got to him right away, and the call had already been made. Like you know, I had made it right away to Glenn. He got the rescue going faster than even a nine one one call for, for for sure. And then as soon as I got to John, I sent out like you know our GPS, but it was a long time. Like, and it turned out his greatest threat to life was hypothermia, which was one thing we could control. Um, you know, we kept him warm, and I remember Brendan was down to a shell. He didn't. He took off everything like he could. To, give it to John to keep him warm to the point where like he was at risk of being hypothermic and that's what it took and I remember like we would like we were huddling with him and like hugging him and rubbing his chest like friction heat you know and like doing all these things and also we were struggling with consciousness like head trauma um, him being combative um, we were worried about spinal injuries which he broke his C2 so rightly so like he could have died from that himself mm-hmm. And especially if he's like moving around, he wanted to ski out. He was so disoriented and like, you know, messed up mentally. Um, and I don't know if I've used any names. If we did, we should take him out probably. But um, <laughs> anyway, um, like a victim at least. Um, and anyway, you know, I, yeah. So I think like the, you know, when, if you're thinking about how to be a better partner, like that progress never ends. Um, can always make better decisions do it together more importantly because like everybody's got risk out there like and you're connected like one way or another like things go south like you're not the victim you're the rescuer you know those are like big things and you know just know that there's like all this risk and it's always there Um, it's always something different Mm -hmm. and try to put the deck on your side because things will go wrong and hopefully like by doing that then you reduce your chances of like something catastrophic or being in a really traumatic situation. Um, it's wild. I think we talk so much about avalanche awareness and taking your avalanche level one, level two, and progressing in that way. But coupled with that should be your wilderness advanced first aid or whatever wilderness training totally. medically wise. Like you have to have that. Yeah, I agree. And I think like equally as important, if not more important, is mentorship. You know, mm-hmm. like you and I are so lucky like we have so many good mentors over the years like you know like Jeremy we talked about Jeremy Jeremy Jones like he's been a mentor to me like he's helped me get through so much stuff like when my dad died when Kip died like how did I get over Kip like it was Jeremy like he was like look you know it's really tough he's like I've lost you know he had lost Shane he was really close with him like you know he helped me deal with that stuff which essentially it's like it doesn't go away it just takes time yeah and, is that what you think like when i was gonna ask you like how to heal trauma and how to heal yeah losing people and yeah what is that for you is it time i think everybody's different um for me it was um movement going back to the mountains like that's always been my solution like go back to the mountains and just keep moving keep the blood flowing keep active and like i remember like i had no stoke for so long after Kip and then after my dad and I remember the moment I got some back I was so psyched like I got it for like a second it was like riding a pouty on KT mm-hmm. and then I got for a minute and then it was like minutes and then it was like you know hours or 10 minutes whatever hours and then a day and multiple days like you just progress through that and now I feel like I'm normal and I'm a happy guy but like that it's always there you have this whole from like these people that you lost that were part of you and that have helped build the person you are. Yeah. And that hole at first is just empty and like so painful and 
traumatic. You think about it, you touch it, you visit it. Everything hurts. But like later that hole starts to fill with like beautiful memories and flowers and it becomes a beautiful place to visit and remember your friends and remember times with them, remember qualities that you loved about them, um, all those things. But the hole is always there. But it can become this like beautiful place to visit and i hope that's for everyone but like that's like my ideal like mm-hmm. and i go to the mountains and like all the time i think about those people and i think maybe i wouldn't even be alive without them i don't know and but like for sure they made me better and they made me really appreciate my time here as a human like mm-hmm. on this earth like because like man it's in the end it's pretty short big picture like and try to make it count and you know, there's so many things that like you don't worry about or get like upset about when you keep the perspective. Yeah. Because you're just like so grateful for so much more and to be here. And I think it's also like uh, it's a bit of a there's a bit of upkeeping to keep that perspective too. Like I agree. I've definitely learned it from these moments of losing friends and yeah. And then it almost goes away at times, and you have to remind yourself of totally. Yeah totally and if it's sometimes it's losing another friend sometimes having a close call sometimes it's just a memory sometimes it's just taking a moment to like reflect Mm -hmm. like we're all so busy like especially since I had my second kid like I I try to like be conscious like create a moment of space to like reflect yeah you know I think meditation is amazing I try to meditate for one minute a day Mm-hmm. If I can get more, that's amazing. But I like my, I want one minute to where I can like try to calm my mind, mm-hmm. and my breathing, and try to like create more focus and intention and prioritizing. And um, yeah, like that's that loss is just so tough, you know. Um, it it comes in so many different forms. Like you know, we have a friend that we could lose at any moment now from cancer. He's not the first person we lost from cancer, family or friends. We have, you know, I've had close calls. Like I lost, we lost people in the mountains this year. You know, we lost Hillary last year. Like, you know, it, it's going to probably continue to happen, honestly. Um, and it's always something, but like, man, like I think like those closest people to me though is really what makes me like be like, oh, you know what? Like they wouldn't be complaining. They'd be psyched to be here right now. I always think of that, yeah. Like, we're like the worst, most heinous conditions in day. You know, you're out with people like you, and we're like, this is so great because we're together and we're enjoying it. Yeah. For what it is. Yeah. Because we need to because there's other people that wish they could. Yeah. And they would, you know. And and it turns out a lot of those days we go out, we don't expect much or end up being the best days. Mm-hmm. You know, you never know until you go. Yeah. And I love that. Like, and it makes me like honor them. I feel like, mm-hmm. you know, like they'd go. Yeah. So we should too. Yeah. So we go. And oftentimes it's amazing. And the best days, because like other people decide not to go and we're the only ones there. Totally, or something right? like that, you know, or, what, or it creates this like magical moment of light that like we couldn't have ever forecasted, you know, all that stuff. And I love that as like a creative and, you know, that collaboration with people and interaction of human energy and stuff is just like the best like because you can't plan for it it just happens and it's a shared experience that like forges these like amazing relationships that we have with people and that are forged in this like time period that like 
you know, climbing does it even quicker, I think, like in my world. And like, I think like, you know, those relationships are forged that in sometimes moments or days or hours where like it would normally take maybe not even, a, it, most people couldn't achieve in a lifetime. Right. Yeah. yeah. And so I, I love that. It's like the best. Um, and just another example of like our rich community here because we have a lot of that. There's a lot of people that are, you know, like, members of the seven-day church of recreationists church church <laughs> yeah. of seven-day recreationists Founded by Jim Zellers himself. That's right, yeah, he's the reverend <laughs> um he's the best yeah yeah well so. that was absolutely beautiful and yeah i think that seems like a great place to thanks for it. having me family dinner time coming up yeah is it time oh yeah it's time yeah well Perfect. thank you so much ming i so appreciate our partnership in the mountains and the collaboration but more importantly I appreciate you as a friend and all the things that you've introduced me to, be that a different way of life in China or um, even climbing. You were the first person that ever took me climbing and all these things are just, I don't know, it's epic. We have an amazing community, so thank you. Yeah, it's the best. We're lucky and I'm grateful to share it with people like you and essentially just, just keep doing it as much as possible, as often as possible. Let's do it. <laughs>